Hello everyone, and welcome to Kinerint Sound of Play 232. Every Wednesday in Sound of Play, we bring you some of our and your favorite pieces from the many video game soundtracks we've enjoyed over the decades. Joining me, Ryan Heyman, in Sound of Play 232 are uh, two guests, two guests that often work together. So uh, this should be fun. We have Paul Arnold and Andrew Barnabas, collectively known as Bob and Barn. Hello. Nice to meet you, Ryan. Hi. Hey. What is your your preference? Let's, let's get the, the naming question out of the way. You have the the Bob and Barn names there. You've got your uh, your your given Christian names. Yeah. <laughs> what, what would you prefer to be called? Let's just go Bob and Barn. Keep it nice and simple. Cool, cool. All right. So uh, you are coming onto the show on the tale of having composed for the recent uh, 2019 remake of Medieval, which we've heard a piece of coming into 
the show here, which is an old uh, PS1 classic uh, that has been kind of revamped, spit shine for the new consoles. It's a really fun soundtrack. I was uh, playing a little bit of it the other day, and my partner, who doesn't do any kind of video gaming at all, uh, regrettably, uh, came into the room and and remarked on how uh, how good the music was. And so I'll, I'll take that as a ringing endorsement. That's very uh, nice to uh, hear. She usually doesn't mention anything. Uh, that's great. So say thank you to her. Anyone who's listened to the show for a uh, any amount of time will know that I have a particular affinity for fun, spooky type of music and visuals and stuff like that and so this this soundtrack in particular really did scratch an itch yeah and, yeah you uh, came I, to I the think right that place this track that you've picked <laughs> <laughs> this track that you've picked is a great introduction to that so i'm uh i'm curious you obviously have uh, quite a bit of history with the medieval series yeah i'm interested in getting into how did you get into this series in the first place and uh, start to kind of form its musical identity in terms of getting into this p- particular series i'm just purely by chance we both end up working for sony cambridge in in cambridge cunning cunningly enough and um barn was working there as the in-house composer i was working there really in in audio but pretty much everything else other than composition um and we we met there and this was one game that they were developing sort of at a time when you'd probably have your hands in four or five different pies actually um kind of different these days but back then there, there were always a few things on the table so that that was how we happened upon this and um we scored that back in 1998 and then continued to work together we we went freelance in 2001 and uh we did medieval resurrection they they asked us to come back as freelancers then and and to score that and then again obviously many many years later when we thought the franchise was dead um actually su- Sony surprised us and and said, "Hey, we're doing a remastered version. Would you like to work on it again?" So, it's it's been an immense privilege to to work on all sort of four iterations of the game and uh, and to be invited back each time. That's uh, it's interesting. I'm curious in uh, reorchestrating some of the music that you had written uh, so much earlier in your career, back uh, with the original release back in 1998. Um, as this piece um, that we heard on the way in uh, was a piece that, as you have uh, noted here, was written as the credits credits track for Medieval 1, improved for Med 2, recorded live for uh, Medieval Resurrection, and as a new mix for the 2019 remake. Um, it must be uh, it must be kind of fun to to revisit some of those old tracks, but I'm I'm curious. Every composer kind of grows and evolves in their skill over the years. Do you find yourself frustrated by older choices that you would have made as as you were younger and and less experienced back then, perhaps? I think actually it was a it was a combination of a few things. First off, medieval uh, the guy who designed medieval as a guy called Chris Sowell, he had a very clear vision of how the game should look, and in turn also how the game would sound. I mean, in some cases, as Bob said, we were just we were just the, effectively the in house sound and composing guys, and therefore we were just we were given every project which was coming through the uh, the studio. In that case, in that particular year, nineteen ninety seven ninety eight, we also did a game called Frogger and a game called Beast Wars. They could not be more different music. 
surgically than this. But <laughs> and in some and quite a lot of those cases, we were. I mean, I think in case of in case of Frogger, the guy who was the producer of that pretty much said to us, "What do you think? What do you think we should be doing?" And in fact, in that case, we had to end up coming up with a, uh, a genre of music which I lovingly refer to as cute funk. But in case of medieval, Chris had a very clear idea because visually the game took a lot of influences from a uh, um, Nightmare Before Christmas, the Tim Burton Henry Selick film from mm. the nineties, and uh, and there was also a game, a Konami um, coin-up game in the uh, the eighties called uh, Ghosts and Goblins, and uh, the sequel Goose and Go- Ghouls and Ghosts. This was sort of like a sort of a, a sort of three D ish version of that with some more. More, uh, more arcade and more puzzly type of elements. So, because visually had a very strong reference, sonically, that also meant we gave us a very strong reference. As you've said before, you quite like the kind of spooky music. Spooky music is, you know, it's quite a, well, it's not quite a genre in itself, but I would say there was one particular composer who has a, uh, has a very big influence on that kind of thing, and that's Tim Burton, the guy was Tim Burton, which is, which is uh, Danny Elfman. Now, we love Danny Elfman's music. We were always a big fan of that kind of style of orchestration and anything else. But to be asked to write music, taking influences from that, from Washjet Keelar's Dracula, from Elliot Goldenthal's uh, Interview with the Vampire, these are the kind of the three main references that we had. At that point, we'd never written music. We'd never been asked to, asked to write music in an orchestral style. Music prior to that was more, I would say, more of a traditional kind of gaming form, gaming styles, more riff-based, more that kind of thing. Whereas this was a proper, you know, Hollywood film scores. So fortunately for us, we were both uh, musically educated and therefore in a position where we could sit there and, and sort of kind of like put apart a score, take apart an orchestral score and figure out what makes it tick. What makes a Danny Elfman score sound like a Danny Elfman score? How does he develop his themes? How does he develop his orchestration? But this was completely new to us. This was something which we'd never done before. So, and combined with that, we were having to, we, were, we didn't have access to an Ive Orchestra or anything else at those days because it was pretty much, no, it was very much not the, not the norm back in the late 90s. We had literally one synthesizer a Roland JB1080, and one sampler, an Akai S3200. That was pretty much it. So, but like, many, as many composers, I'm sure, will say, you know, th- through those limitations comes so comes gold because you're not focusing on the technology, you're focusing on the composition. So from our perspective, it was a case of not only we were trying to analyse an orchestral score and re- write our own first one, we were also trying to, uh, trying to, how can we best write an orchestral score using these very limited sound sources so in those those areas you're sitting there going well I've, we've actually got there's certain areas which are very very easy which sounds sound pretty good pizzicato strings sort of, a lot of percussive type mm. sounds they sound pretty good in samples but brass that sounded terrible so there were a few so you end up sort of having to write around the strength of the samples that we we had through hook and by crook, we hopefully tried to manage to bring something together. Also, the perspective, because we were doing all the sound design for all the games at the same time, because the PlayStation 1 was reasonably limited, we had to then, and we did not, we had, we had very limited amount of RAM which you could put sounds in. We, in some cases, we ended up using the, the music to help uh, to sell the, the, you know, the atmosphere of the level as well. Mm. And uh, so a few of these things all came together and we used a few sounds to try and help mimic what you were, sounds which we would never be able to fit in RAM in the PlayStation 1. So with all this kind of melange of different things, cauldrons of different things coming together, hopefully we somehow we managed to create a, a score for this game. What made that interesting is it, it did seem to quite, we, we realised, both of us realised, it was a style we really liked writing for. So when uh, Medieval 2, when, it, when Medieval 1 did well, there was a sequel which uh, came out in 2000, which we were, again, we were both in-house at that point. At that point, 
as you say earlier, hopefully you compose, you know, as you as composers grow and adapt and evolve. Even those two year in that two year gap, we'd learnt a lot about how to uh, write better orchestral samples. You know, you're better using uh, your, uh, better mock-ups using samples. We had a new synthesizer. We had another a beautiful Kurzweil K200R rack, which had a huge 128 megabytes of RAM. We bought some new sample CDs. And we little things like Bob bought an article in from, I think it was a magazine called Future Music, which talked about how to get brass to sound better. One of the things you could do, this is going to sound very nerdy now, is that you can take a, a, a kind of a brass pad sound and apply a low-pass filter on it, so it sounds like it's a kind of a, a warm brass sound going to a bright brass mm. sound. All these things which we'd never figured out before. So when we did that, hopefully our crucial samples sounded a lot better than they did on pre on the from the first game. And then, but but obviously in both of those cases, we were very keen to record with a live orchestra. But again, it wasn't. It was always going to be a tough sell back in the early late nineties. Fortunately for us, when we we went on freelance in two thousand and one, and uh, Chris Soul's sequel to Medieval was a game called Primal, which is a, one of the uh, earlier PS two titles, and we spent long uh, many many months saying to them we think we'd come to the, what we thought was the pinnacle of uh, writing orchestral sample uh, music using samples therefore the only way for us to do it live and fortunately we managed to persuade them to go with this and therefore that was in 2002 so when medieval resurrection came out in 2004 We'd already done all this hard work, all the groundwork and persuading Sony that clearly this was the way forward. And therefore, it was a much easier sell for them to sit there and go, right, yep, you've done you've done that. You've proved to us you can work with an orchestra and you didn't bugger it up. So therefore, here you go. How about we tantalise you with a nice contract for Medieval Resurrection with a live orchestra? Which obviously, from a creative perspective, was brilliant. You were bringing back tracks which you'd written in 1998 and suddenly we were hearing them being performed uh, in uh, with a live orchestra, ho ho as you always wanted to, and so that in itself was a uh, was was rather a, uh, a defining moment. So the credits track, as you, as you said, that was an interesting one because that was originally written just by on a couple of kind of almost original. I think it was more like a kind of bell type sounds on the JV on the JV turn eighty. A couple of like nice nice riff which came with that. With the version we did for the Medieval Two, because they wanted the same credits track, uh, we had one of one of Bob's old housemates. Turns out to be now is now a very successful composer in his own right. Was a guy called Michael Price, and he worked with. He was actually, I think, at that time, he was still music. I think he was doing music editing for things like Lord of the Rings, and so he came in and I think a space space of a couple of hours gave us what we felt like was about a couple of years worth of film composing knowledge. Like little things like you don't write you don't write strings as strings. You write individual lines for violin one, violin two, cello, uh, viola, cello, and bass. That was a nice revelation. You don't you write melodies first and everything else. He kind of helped us shape our orchestral writing. And he actually used as one of the demo tracks uh, to help writers was the credits track. He said, "Oh, here's how I what I would do with this," which then it did. It made it to a much more much uh, much uh, a much greater track, which was then obviously managed to record live in two thousand and four. So here in two thousand and nineteen. We're now going back and doing all the things which we could never do in 2004, i.e. making the score interactive and do, and hearing a medieval score as you would always want to listen to it. Because one thing which always bugged us, that's what I would say it always bugs me as a games composer full stop, is the bane of repetition. Largely, how much of that to do is with technical limitations, how much of that is to do with... Um, just the way the game is designed and programmed. Ultimately, I, I've always f hated the fact that music would repeat constantly. And in fact, on the first three medieval games, the music you write for each level 
it's not it doesn't reflect what's happening on screen in any way shape or form it's if whether whether Dan's getting his just admiring beautiful scenery or whether he's getting his ass well and truly kicked by a load of zombies the music didn't change that the only only the interactive thing we could get was if you would jump if you got to the end of the level got to a boss track then we managed to trigger a boss tune but whereas now with all the technological advances we could do all those level of interactivity in uh, what we could never do before. And because ultimately what you're trying to do then is you're trying to work out, have a games console or a computer, or whatever, work out how a player is feeling and play music, which will reflect that. So how do we do that? Well, we do it in a number of different ways. What the, how many enemies are surrounding the player, where they are throughout the level, what their level of the health is, all these things, which hopefully you will have an emotional attachment to the player and use those triggers to help develop the piece of music as you go for the level. Because originally the tracks were about two, two and a half minutes long each. I think a lot of it was down to the lim uh, limitations of this on the disc we had. And because we knew we couldn't seamlessly loop these tracks, there would always be a little click between as the, as the CD hmm. searched from one to the other. Uh, we therefore used, the only way we could do that successfully was to write the track quietly. So it started really quiet, crescendoed in the middle and ended really quietly. So that the loop point hopefully will be very not particularly noticeable. But if the track, but the game, even on the early levels, you could easily spend five or ten minutes on on a level, and in that case, these two and a half minute tracks, you'd be just hearing the same track four times. But obviously, that's not great for us. So here, what we ended up doing was taking the tracks because we knew that they wanted to keep the original essence of those original tracks, and but sort of cut them down into very uh, sort of early sections and that as you progress and only repeat certain elements of those sections but because everything was recorded individually we had an enormous amount of control as to what the player would hear what we actually realized was how little how how much of the track you could recognize the track simply from a melody and one bit of accompaniment so you could really power it down to very 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 little and then which gave us a great deal of control and a great deal of uh, variety once, um, or if you kept going through the level, and once the level, and once the uh, players progressed through to a say a certain checkpoint where he's got to the sort of a slightly more difficult, but then you could start introducing next part of the music, and then so on and so forth. So as it turned out, throughout the maybe you could actually have these tunes which would last around ten minutes long, which would roughly be in some cases around the same level as it would take to re complete the level. So hopefully the music would evolve and progress as you went through the game. Something which we always wanted to do in nineteen ninety eight. But we're never able to do that. So if I understand correctly, the point at which the music became interactive was also the same point at which it became kind of live orchestra recordings, which is interesting because it's usually usually video game composers say that it was so much easier to do interactive stuff back when we were still using MIDI samples and, and chip samples because you can really easily kind of crossfade between channels and in, in ways that became more difficult with uh, live orchestra so it's it's uh it's impressive to see that leap made on uh, both fronts at the same time there well actually it's not entirely accurate because we did record the live version for medieval resurrection so that was the first time we recorded an orchestra for the game but in terms mm. of record uh breaking the track down into its individual components we took a, a we took a, a a huge amount of advice or from sony because sony's team in america were fabulous at uh music team were putting this together they were the, they, they had the ideas of recording each section not only not only were we recording each section of the orchestra individually you were recording mm -hmm. you were recording uh, uh to the level of granularity you were recording rhythmic passages 
and long legato nice uh, uh, paddy passages they were all done separately so there was a huge amount of control that they uh that they had in choosing which elements you would hear and also to add to that we ended up also sort of doing midi takedowns of each of the individual elements of the tracks ourselves um, on tracks which we were using for, we were using for medieval, uh, medieval Resurrection in order to allow them to, again, cut them down to a very, very, very limited uh, le- limited amount of, of music so that you could still hear the weird S to the track. And in fact, this brings me on to the, uh, uh, an area uh, addition which Bob gave, which was I'm going to call the spiccato layer, and then handily over, over to Bob to talk about that. The idea of that initially was to have sort of short detached notes on the strings that we could add to all the tracks, tracks that we reused from Resurrection, tracks that we recorded new here. The idea was was that in each case, it would just add a little bit of impetus, a little bit of extra drama to each of the tracks. We thought like, you know, this is easily added to everything. So it means that we've got something new for for people to to hear so we're not just literally regurgitating the past as you know all these tracks are going to feel new in some way or another but what do we do with that how do we attach that well one initial idea that i had was that you know maybe it could be attached to the number of bad guys around you and tweak to court you know so that it wouldn't be too irritating but i think um very much as soon as I suggested that, uh, the view really from the Sony audio team was that there's no real way of not making that annoying because you, you're going to have so many bad guys around you all the time. You know, th- there won't be a number that you can set. You can't say 20 or, or 50 or, you know, th- th- there won't be a, a, a number that will make that reasonable enough to, to work. So in the end, uh, we just opted to to have it as an additional musical layer that we could introduce, bring bring in and out, just to, just to again add an extra layer of variety, and really the the interactivity of the music. I mean, you you can really at- attach it very microscopically to gameplay and and you know make the music respond to exactly what's going on on the screen um or you can have a, a simpler solution which which is basically what's going on here to in order to prevent the music from being too uh, repetitious you bring in new new elements as you progress through the level and that's really what what we're doing here and I, and I think that that really does add an awful lot to the game playing experience but of course, there's a, there's an army of diehard fans out there who who love the original game so much, like the idea of having of, of touching the music in any way, but having it as an interactive element is is not something they're interested in at all. Mm. And we've seen threads actually on on YouTube and so on, and we we've been part of them as well. You know, like sort of discussing this with people. And, you know, there's perhaps the minority of people rather than, you know, there's I don't think there's a uh, sort of a huge community of people feeling this. But certainly there are people out there that, that would definitely prefer the music to be non-interactive, which is a really curious thing because it's one of those things that we, you know, we just all assumed it's going to make the game better. Why wouldn't we do it? And, and of course, one thing that we, we haven't talked a great deal about is, um, especially when you mentioned, well, it's curious that, that we upped the production value, but at the same time made it interactive. One of the things that really helps that transition is middleware. And being able mm. to do that in, in WYs, there's, there's so much control and power now with WYs. And, you know, if I think back, well, if you think back to when Resurrection came out, that didn't exist. And then if you roll right the way back to Medieval 1, apart from what we managed to persuade Chris Sorrell to write for us, there was literally nothing there 
I mean, Chris Chris did an amazing job actually of of writing the equivalent of a middleware solution for us, so that we could have things like random pitch offsets for footsteps and so on. And in fact, he 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 created a tool that allowed us to be very creative with the manipulation of sound at runtime, so we we could use existing sound effects destined for some other purpose and repurpose them um, to create things like the health fountain. Um, and that, that was, that was a revelation, like basically the, the grandfather of, of WYS, if you like, although I'm sure nobody at WYS ever got to see that code. It was kind of had some of, some of the rudimentary facilities, if you like, that, that WYS has got. Very interesting. The, uh, evolving technology. That's cool. Well, speaking of evolving technology, let's listen to another piece of music from uh, earlier in video game history. Um, This is a piece that uh, you had picked out as an influence. Um, This is Monty on the Run by Rob Hubbard back from 1985. So I'm curious, as composers, you uh, hear a piece of music like this, obviously something that has a, a super catchy tune to it, but also um, as is um, kind of Rob Hubbard's way, a uh, very intricate uh, composition and structure. Like, what do you get out of this piece of music? Well, for me, it was one of those turning moments. I I'd never really thought of becoming a games composer. And in fact, at that point, in the early mid eighties, I was like most teenage at the time, listening to well over in this country, top of the pops, all the chart music and everything else. But it was when I started hearing music that Robert done for the 64 that I start really appreciating just how how good the music could be on the Commodore 64. Because I was, you know, being a massive nerd, I was I was beginning to get under, I was beginning to understand just how how you would write it on there. Rob had written his own player. He'd learned to code the 64. He had a very distinctive sound for snare drums. Very distinctive sound. It, it did some clever things. It, I think it was. I think I think it might have been the first one. To use, I'm going to get really technical now. On um, the, the 64 had had had, sim- had three notes polyphony, very very simple. But it was a hell of a lot more advanced than the equivalent, which was the comp- which was the um, Sinclair Spectrum. It sounded literally like beeps and bloops. This the this uh, the uh, the Bob Yannis sound uh, designed SIG chip on the 64 uh, was by the guy one that worked for in Sonic. So it was a synth manufacturer. So he want he understood what made great synth sounds and he gave and he put some of that into the SID chip on the 64 ring modulation pulse code modulation uh, ADSR and just complex waveforms and all these things which sounded a little bit more like a synth and Rob was very good at uh, eking the best out of those kind of things and one thing he did for example was realising that okay how do I I've only got three notes I want to do one note for my lead melody one note for my sort of maybe my chords I want to do bass and drums but that's four how do I do that well he did things like um, he would do the uh, he wouldn't bother with the bass drum he would have a bass note, which would sound more like a bass drum, and then a snare drum. So, we would actually sound like a bass drum would be the bass guitar, but then the uh, the snare drum would just be after it. So he would just do some really clever little things like that. But obviously, what I really appreciated about this was the, was simply the artistry and the music. It was a fabulous piece of music. I mean, I'll be honest, most, most of the game itself was was great. It wasn't wasn't it wasn't anything to write home about. But everyone I spoke to remembers the music, and I always remember there was a magazine I used to. Read religiously called uh, Zap 64 and I think it was the first time I'd ever seen uh, the sound because uh, it gave everything a percentage and it gave I think it gave sound 100% or 99% it was simply because 
the the music was so good it was a six i think it was about six and a half minute uh long track and it just went off in so many different directions and it was it was such an inspiring piece of music to hear because it was just so it was a you know effectively in the game itself it looked a bit like jet set willy it was kind of like a more like a sideways scrolling platform game but this music just elevated it so much more and i can i can remember the i can remember i can i can hum the theme tune now even if i hadn't heard it for 20 years someone said to me what's the th- what's the monty one want to theme tune but i can remember very very clearly and rob i mean i think kind of what i sort of describe as more like uh, the reason i picked it is because there were a number of well-known 64 composers who were my heroes in the day back in the 80s you had your martin goreway your david whittaker rob hubbard and then a bit later on you had manix noise joan tell and charles dean and all these guys were doing fabulous work on it but i think the one i mean as someone described me once that rob was kind of like he was the elvis of the 64 and i kind of thought that pretty mm. much sums it up in fact many years ago i saw i was i was uh honored to see him perform some of his some of his music at uh at a, a concert in a an event in Brighton called Back in Time Live and another actually it was another composer games composer friend of mine just stood next to me and he just whispered into my ear he goes he's the reason we do what we do <laughs> and I went mm. oh my god you're totally right I'd never really thought about <laughs> it but yes it was quite a defining moment so that's why I picked that because not only was it a great Wob Hubbard tune but it was also for me he pretty much was exemplified what I thought made everything great about the Commodore 64 fantastic this is Monty on the Run by Rob Hubbard <laughs>
into the world of medieval um, since you have composed for a number of these games now there are some composers that um, very obviously do the type of creepy music well whether it's the uh, really kind of terrifying creepy stuff like akira yamaoka or the more kind of fun creepy stuff like grand kirkhope do you um you know now that you've had uh, so many of these games within this style are there any uh, kind of tricks or or little musical flourishes that you find really accentuate this, you know, creepy castle type of music? Mm, that's an interesting question. I mean, back, back in the original, back in the, in the day when we first started working on medieval, because we had such a strong steer um, with the music being uh, in the Danny Hoffman vein, um, we, we sat down and did a kind of analysis. We, we looked at how he was working with harmony, orchestration, melody, and, and tried to get a feel for, um, what kind of made it tick. So we, we learned an awful lot from that. And then of course we, you know, we've revisited this franchise a, a number of times and, and it, you want to put a little bit of yourself into that too. But I'd, I'd say one of, one of the big things that gives it such character is, is a lot to do with the way you present it and the way you orchestrate the music, um, the choice of instruments. Um, often less is more, not not overdoing it. It doesn't always need to be a big sound. Something fairly small um, can, can sound a lot cheekier. Um, pizzicato mm. strings, of course, 
um, or, or very short detached spiccato strings, things like that, that, that really add a huge amount of character to, to the music. At the same time, um, to not be afraid to, to use every part of the orchestra. You know, we will sometimes have um, the brass take the lead and, and play the melody while the strings accompany. You know, it's a, you don't always have to reach for the strings to, to, to play the melody parts. And, of course, woodwinds are, are wonderful because they can add little little runs and flourishes throughout um, that, again, just, just add an extra layer of, of detail and, and keep the music interesting. Interesting. This is a another piece called Comedy Corpses. Uh, I, I do appreciate, as I've said up front, the uh, whenever comedy and horror are kind of brought together, that makes a really fun balance. And I think that this um, the soundtrack for this series balances those things really well. Uh, do you ever lean into doing something that is more kind of outright scary or, or do you always try to have that little bit of comedy edge onto it? I mean, as freelance composers, um, you tend to, to, to go where the jobs are and, and you know, what well, mm-hmm. you, you're only as good as really what somebody's prepared to offer to you. So, you know, we love doing music like this. It's something that we find to be great fun, but in, in all honesty, uh, We've been doing this for 18 years and we get pulled in all kinds of different directions, particularly as we work across all media as well. We don't just do video games. We also work in in TV and film. And so just recently we've done a romantic comedy. We've done a a quiz show, uh, another TV show, and each one of them very, very different from the other. So it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of hard to say. I actually really enjoy the variety, the fact that we wear different hats and that we, that we are asked to write in so many different styles. Mm-hmm. I think there are limitations to, to how far we're prepared to go with that. If you kind of want a hardcore drum and bass track, we're probably not the guys for you. But, um, you know, if, if it's an acoustic style of music with, with some live instrumentalists on it, you know, we've, we've done all all range of things from from jazz, blues, rock, funk, and and obviously orchestral, and it's and it's something we we love doing. I am a bit of a joker, I think, generally in a bit of life. So I generally I do quite like to be a bit cheeky with things, and therefore I think just from a personality perspective, I do like adding a bit of comedy when the opportunity does arise. And I think Comedy Corpses was a particularly good example of that one, that's why I picked it. But to answer your question, what have we done full out balls out horror? Yes, we have. We have done over full out balls. And in fact, it's, I think that's, a, that's quite an interesting one because it's, it's, then it's a question about texture. Whereas a lot of horror films these days, they do, they, they do go down that kind of how do we make the audience play or whatever? How do we make them feel uneasy and how do we do those kind of things? And I find those kind of challenges equally as, equally as gratifying. But I've, I would definitely say from a musical perspective, you know, what I quite like to write is sort of definitely slower music and uh, with a bit of tongue in cheek is definitely uh, my cup of tea. It's a fun way to put it. This is Comedy Corpses from Medieval Resurrection. Thank you. 
also a good example of of the things that I was talking about in terms of changing up the orchestration. There's a lot of variety in that. And we, we go right the way through the orchestra and different instruments taking the melody, taking mm. the lead. And and so I think that's that's quite a good illustration of, of what I was trying to say about uh, changing up the orchestration. I loved in uh, listening to the medieval uh, 2019 soundtrack, whenever an, uh, an organ would jump in, that always got me really excited. It's like, oh man, what a powerful sound. <laughs> Yes, that yeah, that is wonderful, isn't it? Uh, so I'm uh, I'm interested in you two have been working together for a long time, but you kind of at the top of the show said that you had uh, perhaps met each other kind of by chance, just working in the same projects. Uh, how did you kind of decide to continue working together, and how did that uh, you know what kind of history do you have? Well, we both ended up working for the same video games company. So we, we came to work for Millenni- Millennium Interactive, born in mm-hmm. 1995, me in 1996. And we were both working in-house there. So of course, inevitably, we were, we were working together because we were thrown together. Um, but we, we talked, I don't know when when we started conceiving ideas of going freelance, but, but during that, we did that for five years. During that five-year period, we'd kind of decided that we'd like to go freelance. And we could see that, that maybe there was an opportunity to move out of house and work on more projects externally. And actually that also worked for the games developers because they didn't need to have the wage burn of one or two composers sitting there, potentially doing nothing some of the time. And, you know, this is how it works in film and in TV. You know, they don't have in-house, in-house composers on the whole. So mm-hmm. for, from our perspective, we, we thought that made sense and something we wanted to do. So using money that we'd been able to save or bonuses that we'd, that we'd receive for, for certain projects, we set money aside and started to, to build up our own studio. And then we, we reached sort of uh, 2001 and an offer came our way to, to do quite a significant amount of uh, freelance video game work. I don't know whether we, I can't really speak for Barn, but it, it was a very scary thing to, to make that jump at that point. And I don't know whether I'd fully prepared myself for that, but it was clear, you know, we we either had to go for it or, or if we weren't going to do it then, like when was going to be a good time, you know? Mm. So, um, so anyway, we did, we did do it. And, uh, on the whole, I'd say we've never regretted it, but of course it's, it's been a real, um, hand-to-mouth existence at times and and perhaps not the rose-tinted view that people imagine sometimes you know where there's no work and there's there's not really much money left in the coffers and you're sort of thinking how am I going to pay the the wage bill how am I going to pay uh, the tax man and you know we we've been close to the wire a few times and it's it's a real roller coaster it has been and the, the one thing that has kind of saved us along the way is um, we've we've written music for library, library music. And uh, the income that we receive in royalties from that really has helped to, to save our bacon at times because you're still receiving an income from that regardless of whether you're winning pitches or not. Mm-hmm. And it just makes the, the job of a full-time composer more viable. So one of the things that uh, kind of popped out to me in my research is that you have a lot of, uh, you seem to have a lot of interest in world music and uh, instruments from all over uh, different cultures all over the world. Uh, where did this kind of pick up and, and you know, what does this stem from? I, I find that to be really interesting. As composers, we love writing music. And if we can, if we can hopefully steer 
the clients we work a couple of you know, clients we work with to help you know to go well i think you should write music in this style would be great for you we're effectively going how about you guys pay us to write music in the music in the style we like to write wouldn't that be a mm. great idea and so i think this first stemmed from uh there's a game we did in 2002 called kung fu chaos this was an Xbox, uh, original first Xbox, not Xbox One, you would call it these days, the first Xbox game. It was like four little ninja characters basically kicking the shit out of each other on badly recreated film sets of the 70s. And they went on a journey from a dojo in China all through to the New York skyline. And each of the levels had a different flavor and a different theme. There was a Jurassic Park type level. There was a Titanic type level. And and so we had, when, this was a quite a fun game for us to work on. But what we ended up doing is, I mean, the funny thing is, when we first started writing it, there was some, they, uh, Microsoft were uh, publishing it, and they had some, which is quite, quite a bit of a kind of a surf dude. He was like, I forget his name now, but he came over and he said to us, guys, what would you do if I got you a load more money? And of course, we said, we'd be called the score live. That's how you would do it. And then we went off and then... Um, we, we and then we end up basically writing all the score uh, for this for this game, with making no effort to make this sound realistic because obviously, as far as we were concerned, there was going to be some money coming down the line that we could end up writing recording this score live because we want to do we had to, we had to, we actually had to had to write a music design document uh, for the audio director describe uh, in in quite some detail how the music would evolve from a an authentic sounding Chinese score. Across uh, through Asia, across on the uh, on the crossing crossing the Atlantic on the Titanic, ending up in a New York skyline, where we decided mm. that we'd end up with some kind of seventies funk. So we kind of went through funk, kung fu, and disco as the uh, as a sort of our, our benchmarks for this. And of course, at the eleventh hour, the email came through. Yeah, we're not going to get that money for you. And at that point, we were like, "Oh my god, we can't do this because the music sounded terrible to us." Because we spent mm. no time making the music sound realistic. We had literally it was just like they were just very basic demos using, if people will know, general MIDI brass things like that. Terrible. So then we was like, had this horrendous moment. Was like, "Oh my god, we've been freelance for a year. This is gonna this is gonna destroy us if this game comes out and people hear our music on this." So then we decided, how about we just go off and do our own thing in fact you know what we will we decided our own home backs to go and record the score live we cut every corner we could possibly cut we managed to get uh, uh three string players would come and sit in my in my my flat uh in my flat we had three brass players we had uh bass drums and guitar recorded in a little tiny recording studio in a church near norwich and uh but so what but what i think one of the things which really really helped the score sound realistic is I think my one day we just I just literally googled Chinese music UK to see what came up with, and we found a guy uh, called Jiang Li uh, Li Jiang who lived in Rushton, which is not you know probably an hour or two away from us, and we so we just popped him an email, and his his website was literally ChineseMusic.co.uk. He was a Chinese guy who'd come over to the UK and was obviously quite interested in bringing over Chinese music influences. So we just had a, a long dialogue with him and said, look, we'd like to write this music. And for the first level of this game in the dojo, we want to make it sound really authentic. As levels progress, there'll be less there'll be less Chinese instruments and more kind of funk type of stuff. But for the first few half of the levels, we'll like to do this. And he was very instrumental, pun intended, on uh, helping us choose the instruments which we thought, which we, which he thought would sound really good for us. And, but this really opened our eyes for the first time to how, to what ethnic instruments could really bring to the table. Uh, he was very, we had a, what was it? It was a pipa, which is the Chinese flute. We had the erhu, the Chinese violin, two-string violin. We had the uh, gaojing, which was the um, dulcimer and the harp. I forget which ones are, and the dulcimer. So we had four or five different instruments we chose. And we'd, we'd managed to find 
samples of this because we like doing ethnic music anyway but at the time we had literally I think it was an expansion card on one of our synths was an app to be an ethnic one so all we could use was the samples available on there and so that's what we used to write the demos for it and then when we heard the players come in and we heard the performer and that was for me quite a lightning that was quite a lightning bolt moment it was like oh my god this, this could not sound you know this, this could this this has totally transformed this one thing the sound which I really I think Bob and I would both agree the sound which really really showed us like, was the air who this Chinese violin this two string incredibly expressive instrument we end up using it on a lot of scores subsequently as a result of this because it's such a fan, fabulous lead instrument but this really opened our eyes and then we realized okay this is something we quite like doing so we're quite like doing a lot of ethnic music. And so then on projects subsequently, if there was an opportunity to do something which had sort of world music influence, we jumped at it. We jumped at it. In fact, we worked with Lee Jiang on, I think, three or four other projects since then. We did some library tracks. We did, uh, I think most prominently, we did a game called Brink, in 2000, which came out in 2011, uh, which had, had an air who as a, one of the lead instruments. It also had a tube and throat singing. Uh, we had lots of percussion recorded by a, a world percussion, very famous percussionist called Pete Lockett. And yeah, we just brought in loads and loads of different instruments, even recording like gongs and, and various other percussion instruments, just because we realised it just added a, such an unusual flavour to this uh, to, the, yeah. to our scores that we thought, what would be a great thing to do? How about we mix ethnic music with a live orchestra, electronics, and in some cases, maybe a rock band? Why not? Who could say what happened? It was that kind of melange again of things bringing together. I think that's one of the things we quite liked about coming from the games industry, where there weren't, you know, the, the rules weren't anywhere near as hard and fast as they were in more like film or TV, where things were, were more traditional. We had, you know, barriers were more open to us to be more, a bit more experimental. And I think that's one thing we took from the game industry. Let's let's see what happens. Why don't we put these together and see what comes together? And actually, we turned out they actually did come together. Fingers crossed, quite well. Uh, let's listen to another piece of music that has uh, that you had put forward as an inspiration. This is a piece called Unreal from Unreal, uh, composed by Charles Deenan. Uh, do you want to talk anything about uh, this this piece of music in particular? I can talk. Yes, absolutely. Well, um, again, sixty four was was my first sort of gaming influence. Loved it. The you know the Commodore Amiga, the sixteen bit version. That's where I really just discovered a love and that's in fact that's that's i would say argue that's, that's definitely the computer which gave me my career as a games composer and there were certain defining moments about that which uh, when i first heard led storm by tim follin when i first heard r-type by chris hulsbeck these were like this is real music because the, the, the amiga had which on the 64 was great but the amiga had sampling which again was again for that computer for the, for the computer of the day it was fairly advanced for a 1985 mm-hmm. computer four channel 8-bit si- uh, sequencing uh, samples were just lightly as ahead of anything which a chip uh, which chip music would generate so yeah for me the amiga was a huge influence on my on my career and and the one thing I, but one of the reasons why I picked this particular music was that I lo- again loving of ethnic music when I first heard this this was like like, oh my God, this is an incredible piece of uh, proper ethnic sounding music. It had pan pipes, it had a really nice arpeggiated riff, it had some beautiful um, percussion sounds, which all sounded very ethnic and very oriental, and quite, to me, quite oriental. And so I, it really influenced me. And so, I mean, I could have picked Tarikan too. I could have picked a number of different tracks from the Amiga. But I actually thought, you know what? This is probably a lesser known track. But the ones I also wanted to give a note, it also gives a nice shout because Charles Deenan, 
uh, was uh, one half of Maniacs of Noise. Maniacs of Noise were the, the Commodore 64 duo, duo and Tell and Charles Dean and both Dutch guys, Dutch composers. And so this was Charles Dean and working uh, uh, in solo mode and coming well, well, with great aplomb, as I would like to describe. Thank you. 
let's go into this next piece of music that you've put forward from your own library is um, from that uh, PlayStation 2 game that you mentioned earlier, Primal. So what was it like transitioning hardware from PS1 to PS2? I know that the PlayStation 1 was capable of uh, CD quality audio. Uh, so maybe the the difference wouldn't be quite as stark as if you were transitioning from something that was uh, chip-based into something that was uh, more CD quality audio-based. But uh, you know, were there any kind of extra affordances that you were able to receive with the uh, bigger disc size or any of the technology improvements that really affected how you wrote for this game? I mean, certainly we, we were able to write more music and we could store more music. Um, that, that was certainly one advancement. But, but on the whole, I'd say our approach was largely the same. And in fact, the big step up here was, was going to a live orchestra over um, producing the demos in synth and in samples. And um, for, for us, actually, in terms of the writing of the music, it was very, very story-driven. So we, 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 we got all those cutscenes sent to us ahead of time, and we actually scored them as if it was uh, you know, a, a straightforward, linear sound-to-picture job. And so that was, that was fascinating, actually, and I really loved working that way. And it really helped to flesh the story out. Um, the in-game music curiously because it was so ex uh, because it was an exploration game uh, or a lot a lot of the game was exploration um the music just sort of came in and out and was very subtle in the way that we used it we didn't have huge amounts of it but just if you've been wandering around for a while we, we might introduce a cue just to just to sh sort of sho shove you along a little bit but, you know, the, the reality was um, we were still kind of pre-middleware and uh, the technology was still relatively basic. So we had ideas on how we wanted the music to be implemented, but often the technology would, would get in the way. We'd, we'd hear things like, uh, you don't, the code doesn't know you've walked through that door. You know things like that, which was which is quite frustrating from our perspective because, you know, we we could have done so much more if if there'd been more um, code support, let's say, on that side. I mean, it's a very different story these days because with the integration of middleware and uh, and the way that games are made now, I'm very sure you'd never ever come up against a problem like that anymore. So you know, all bets are on now. You can you can do whatever you want. But yeah, that was that was sort of the curious thing. So the music was certainly more interactive than medieval, but but marginally more. Um, but but for us, the big step up was the the production value to go to a live orchestra. I think one thing I'm going to add to that is that I remember because, as Bob said, it was a it was a large exploration game. There was a lots of points where you're walking around looking at the beautiful scenery, and it really was quite beautiful. Um, but I remember doing one test. I'll picture the scenario. There was a, imagine it's a, a dark lit, uh, imagine it's, you're walking through the forest at night and it's, it's a very snowy, it's, it's snow all over the ground. The only thing lighting you up is the, uh, is, the, is the moon in the sky. And as you walk across, you come into a clearing and you see an entrance to a cave. Now in the cave or there, you can see a little bit of, little bit of sort of light, little sort of orangey red light. So you can clearly see some, some, kind, of, some kind of light, a flame down there. So, and so we decided, mm -hmm. so how about we do a test it? So we added a, uh, a null pointer over the center of the cave uh, for a radius of around, I think it was about 20, 25 meters. So that any time the player would walk 
you know, 10, 20, uh, 20, 20 meters close to this, it would trigger this one, uh, this one particular key. And all we did was added a low cello note, like a low mm, string note. All it was, nothing else, nothing else to it. Just a, a bit of a test to see how. So we had, we set it up and we set it up and we had a couple of players uh, test uh, in the building. Just go, come on, what do you think? Walked up, walked up to this uh, scenario. Half of them walked in and went, were like. Oh, that 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 says to me danger, and walked straight away from it. The mm. other half said, "Oh, there's something good down there. It might be dangerous, but it might be worth going to visit because there might be some good stuff and loot down there as well." So it was interesting to say how something as simple as simple as a cello note would polarize how players would react to a current scenario. Sadly, it was pretty much the only time we could ever do that because so much of the code. That was that's one thing I've always I've always you know as Bob has said there was so much of the time the code didn't know where you were because we were brought on as composers. You were brought on quite late in the day, whereas. The one, the one difference between game audio and audio for TV and films, I know, is game audio is not as much post-production as it is. You can't write music for a film unless you've got the film in front of you. Same with a TV show. But with gaming, there's so much of it is technology-based, whereas if the artists have written, you know, worked on this particular area months and months ago, if they've not applied pointers which the code can latch onto, there is no way of an audio programmer saying, I will be can I just latch this onto this? Because there's nothing to latch onto. So that and that would need to be done at the time when the artists were making the level. So a lot of this stuff is uh, it was kind of finding your feet and learning the way around it. But yeah, ultimately a lot of it was because we, the code just did not know what you were doing and we couldn't latch on to anything as a result. So this particular track that you've put forward, Jen Meets Arella, is there a, are there any insights or anything that you want the audience to listen out for when, uh, when this track is playing? Curiously, actually, this was probably the first thing we wrote for Primal. I seem to remember we did a verse, the very first demo we did, uh, it had guitar in it and it was a bit more rock based than this. Um, because we were still finding our feet, we didn't we didn't really know what the game was going to sound like. This was the first cue, and it, and it, and actually, it really hasn't changed much at all, except for the instrumentation. I think the cue is largely the same. Is is that right, Barn? Well, it's, it's the same theme. The theme itself, because uh, it was actually written for a um, sort of like a video to demonstrate the game. I think I'm not even sure they'd sold the game at that point in the game, but this was the first time they were trying to show off the game to the public or whatever to try and get more funding. When we saw it, it was the, the, it was the fact that the plight of this uh, this this young girl Jen who had uh, managed to get lost into this fantasy world. My immediate reaction was, uh, what, "What? How would that sound?" And it was going to be the sound of a uh, a solo female voice. So it happened to be uh, as a guy in the office whose girlfriend was a singer. So we haven't said, "Do you mind coming in and doing that?" I think you played guitar on that originally. I think that was yeah. the first thing we played yeah, guitar. On. So the actual the, so that that piece of music is quite different. But in terms of the actual theme itself. This became the theme for uh, Jen was effectively this piece of music. But you say that, but I, even like the key change in the middle and stuff, I, th- I think even that is the same. I think quite an awful lot of stuff came across. Anyway, that, that, was, that, that was kind of the interesting thing. This was our first real look at Primal.
Uh, next piece that you put forward is a piece from a mobile game. Uh, mobile gaming, when it kind of originally came around, did kind of mix up the scene a little bit and uh, put games in front of a, a larger number of people and uh, also kind of it put the challenge in front of composers to write for, uh, I mean, preferably headphones, but oftentimes just very uh, low quality speakers uh, on the on the bottoms of phones. So uh, the 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 ones that can do it well oftentimes um, are uh, are pieces that are written kind of with all these contingencies in uh, in mind. Um, have you ever had to write for phones or different technologies that really shook up the ways that you've uh, written? It's, it's something that we have had to do actually in the past. Um, we we did in in our early days look at trying to score for for phones and um, and handheld devices and of course we we've written on the PSP uh, for medieval resurrection which was kind of mm. interesting as well and it, and it is a slightly different approach in that you have to think about the the small speakers and and also hope that people are going to be predominantly using headphones but this this piece that you're that you're talking about here uh, the monument valley by Todd Baker we we knew Todd actually in his days uh, working at Frontier and here in Cambridge and uh, he, the music that he's done for this is is really interesting it's very very tough to to kind of judge it um, say against you know a large large production orchestral track and you know the, this this did the rounds in the um, you know the Ivan Novellos and the Baftas and so on and it's it's really tough it's like comparing carrots and cars you know, and then someone says, "Which one do you prefer?" Well, it, just, it sort of depends on you know what my priority is in that moment. If it's about getting from A to B, then it probably won't be a carrot. And that's the thing mm -hmm. that the music here serves a completely different function for this game. And the 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 music is is quite simple in its construction. It's very beautiful, but it's very simple. Uh, but the the integration within the game is just incredible. And it's it creates such an immersive environment. Uh, it's 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 very very compelling, and so it's very difficult to judge it against other things. But that's why I wanted to kind of throw this one in there because it's a it's a bit of a curveball against um, you know well the next one, which is which is very much sort of at the opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of uh, production value. Right, very cool. This is Child by Todd Baker from Monument Valley Two.
another piece that you had written for the game Brink. This is Resistance main theme. Uh, what can you tell us about this project and this piece of music? Okay. Well, as, actually, I talked about this earlier. This was a this this is a prime example of saying, uh, right, let's see, we can let's let, let's 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 take a game which we love the style of, we love the visuals, we love the whole design of it. And the actually the designer of the game, Ed Stern, was a uh, was a an amateur percussionist. So he was very very he was very very into his music and had a very strong influence on that. And in fact, his initial idea his initial idea for us to score the game was to make the entire game purely percussive. I kind of went, I kind of pushed back on that. I said, well, that's all well and good, but ultimately this is a first person shooter. What kind of sounds does a first person shooter make? What kind of sounds does percussion make? It's going to just get in the way. Everything's just going to end up conflicting with each other a little bit too much. In fact, if anything, you want the music for, I've, all, I've actually stated a few times, this is what I love about doing games, that actually I would like to do the, like to do the exact opposite of what you would expect to hear and have something which is very, and minimal and ambient. And so what I ended up doing here was, um, was coming up with the score, which kind of was more of a hybrid of the two. So this is this this was a case of let's 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 keep the whole percussion thing. Let's go let's go with Pete Lockett, probably the most uh, well known um, percussionist in this country for doing film and TV stuff. And he has a, a huge huge collection of percussion instruments, which helped because there were two factions in Bring. There was a resistance and the security. Resistance are more like. The rebels, I suppose, I should describe them as wombles, actually, because they were living in kind of like trash, and they were living in in squalor in these old shipping containers. Whereas the uh, the uh, security side of it, they were living in these nice, pristine new towers. So one was like, how do we make this one sound very organic and very acoustic? And that's why we went up to going for lots of different uh, lots of different percussion instruments. You can hear my uh, example of the of the air who I discussed, which I discussed earlier, the Chinese violin as doing a lead instrument. We had a solo violin. Uh, Tuvan vocals, uh, that kind of sound. Also doing a, uh, a vocalist singing the late theme as well. And also one of the things which I found was a really interesting instrument to use for this was called a hang drum. Now a hang drum was something which we found was like, how do we kind of go with Ed's ideas of having a percussive, but at the same time keeping it quite uh, quite musical. And an instrument we discovered online was called a hang drum. The hang drum was only invented about, about 20 years ago uh, in Switzerland. And uh, it was a... It's it looks like basically it's like an inverted steel drum. You sort of tap the surface. It looks like a UFO. You tap the surfaces and it creates a wonderfully distinctive, uh, percussive but yet melodic tone. And so initially, I was speaking to I was trying to find some percussion uh, hang drum players to perform on this, and most of them were like, "Yeah, I'm up for that, but I've got one because they're about three thousand pounds each." And I was thinking, "What key is it?" And it's in D. Oh, brilliant. Okay. When I realised in there, I can't write. I can't really because the score was a big, big score. It's probably two and a half hours, maybe more, for the score of this. I can't write an entire score in D. Just can't do it. As much as I'd like to, I just can't do it. So we ended up having to find somebody who had multiple hang drums, and we finally got a wonderful guy called Manu Delago, who lived in London, uh, but he had five hang drums. 
And in fact, the first, if you Google hang drum, well, when we last, if you used it on YouTube, in fact, the first link was him playing it. And so he was, he was a, again, a fab, fabulous collaborator because he would come up with ideas and I would do it. So this was, this was a, a real throw, you know, this was a real, um, kind of, that's probably, I suppose, our, our, our greatest in terms of achievement, in terms of how do we create something which is quite an unusual collection of instruments from, I mean, I think Pete played anything out of the best part of 30 percussion instruments on this. We had five hang drums on it. Uh, we had a full orchestra on it. We had lots of custom electronics. I mean, most of that was more for the, since, but that was more for the security side of it. And then we had different vocalists, the two vocalists and uh, this. And we had the, the we had Chinese, Chinese instruments as well. We had the air who they are the i think we i think we had the gouging and the dulcimer as well so yeah it's a real real hodgepodge of different musical elements which we thought would actually best evoke the fact that the story of brink was the fact that these uh these collection of humans all, all got together and 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 it sort of made up and it made up a uh, a community in the middle of the ocean but the community had cut themselves off from the rest of the world but the community was beginning to run out of resources and they had no way to access the mainland because they were convinced that it had been it had all been destroyed. So how do we bring all that together and uh, turn into this? So this is this is what we came up with. Fantastic. This is Resistance main theme from Brink. next into a another uh, piece of music that was a revitalization of uh, music written back in the uh, back in the PlayStation 2 days for modern hardware to kind of tie it back into the medieval theme here uh, this is a uh, piece from God of War 2018 that uh, 
that takes some of the themes from uh, the older God of War games into this uh, this new game with an entirely new kind of ethos and personality and persona to it. So uh, this this track by Bear McCreary, uh, why is it that it stood out to you? Yeah, I mean, it's hardly original to choose something like this. Um, <laughs> you know, it's a massive production value, lots of money thrown at it. And, and of course, it's inspiring. And it's inspiring really for those reasons. I mean, I, I do love the production quality on this. But I, the writing is, is fabulous. I, I love the way it gradually builds. I love... The, the 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 monotony if you like uh, that sounds like a, a really bad word to use but um the the way the way it's it's quite uh, repetitive um but and it just gradually builds and builds and builds on top of it i mean it's a real tour de force in terms of the writing but we all know that Bear McCreary knows what he's doing when it comes to that. But it just really, it brings a fantastic cinema cinematic experience to, to video gaming. So that's the, that's the reason why I chose this.
have one piece of music left to listen to today, but uh, first I'd like to remind everyone to venture over to the forum at canonrinse.com slash forum or get in touch with us on Twitter at canonrinse if you'd like to request uh, your favorite pieces of video game music for future shows. Uh, we've got a few other podcasts on the network. We have Canon Rinse, our deep dive show of uh, video game history, so to speak, on Mondays. Playwright, where we create new video games on Thursdays. And The Sausage Factory, where we talk to game developers, usually in the indie space, on Fridays. I would like to, again, thank the combination of Bob and Bard for uh, joining me today. Uh, yeah, I really appreciate you taking some time out and um, and being so uh, thorough and in-depth in explaining your musical process and history. Our absolute well, pleasure. Thank you, thank you very much for inviting us, Juan. This, uh, this last piece of music is another one that you've written and one that I was really curious about as well. This is from a PSVR game called uh, Riggs Mechanized Combat League. And I'm I'm curious, you know, talking, uh, we talked about composing for uh, phones and for PSP in the past. PSVR is kind of the opposite thing where the music is perhaps more immersive and more surrounding the player uh, than the uh, than even, you know, the kind of upscale PS4 uh, types of, uh, of video games you would compose for a flat screen. Were there uh, any considerations that had to take place in the production of this music to account for the kind of 3D audio of PSVR or any any uh, differences in the uh, strategy of writing this music for VR headsets? We've worked in the um, surround sound space for, for a long time. Mm-hmm. And one thing that we, we've learned along the way is that um, regardless of what the rest of the sound's doing and how fancy they're being in 5.1, for example, when you, when you work on a film, you still keep the music in stereo because it's it's kind mm. of it's not part of the see, the scene. It's it's uh, diegetic, and so as a result of that, you um, you 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 want to you still want to keep that as a kind of a flat image, if you like, to, like a narrator, um, and so. With this situation, we wondered if we might approach things differently, but in in the end, the reality was, it was it was better to keep the soundscape simple because the sound, the rest of the sounds, all of the sound effects were were taking center stage and and obviously providing a much more immersive environment. We felt that we'd keep it simple with the music and just have the music sitting in a more two dimensional space, let's say. Mm. But the the great thing about um, VR is that sound really can can drive your attention to where you want the drive the attention of the the viewer to where you want them to look so the mm. the opening sequence on that was was a real challenge because of course people can look anywhere but if you've got a set piece you know that you want them to see then um, how do you stop them from just looking up at the ceiling or looking somewhere else and missing the whole thing um, and the, the the answer to that was sound um, because, you know, if a loud bang happens, you know, over to your left and up in the air somewhere, you're probably going to turn your head and have a look at that. And and it's sound that, that is very directional, um, but not through the music. It's usually always through sound design or, or dialogue. Um, and you, you look in the direction in which your attention is being grabbed. So so it was a really interesting experience for us to to see how sound actually becomes more elevated in importance uh, in VR, but not necessarily the music. Well, actually, I'm going to jump in and say the intro was actually, you talk about the intro. Now, I, for me, that was an interesting challenge because 
the 3D side of the sound uh, was pretty much, it was still quite limited on PSVR. They could only do a few emitters in, in kind of HDR space, so you couldn't really have a great deal of um, interactivity. But what we could do in real time was what's called binaural. Binaural is where a sound, normally we're all, we're all familiar with stereo, where sounds can go, go between our right ear and the left ear and back. But binaural uses some interesting levels of phase which allows, which means that the sound sounds like, to, be, to, a, to a certain degree, like it's going over your head. And we thought, okay, where can we use this? And there was the one, say, one place we could really use this was the intro of the game. The intro of the game, you have all these wonderful, massive, beautiful-looking mechs jumping. It's, like a, like, it's, like, it's more, more like a sports game, more, more like a sports game intro, where you've got a nice presenter commentary and uh, uh, crowds and everything else. And you have these mechs coming, jumping in, jumping in front of you and looking nice and impressive. And there's one sequence where a mech comes at you, runs at you, and the cam runs at you as if you were right at the camera. And then it, just before it hits you, it thinks it basically jump, it bounces down and jumps over your head, and it, then mm. it goes into slow motion, and it's wonderful. So you can see everyone watching this; they all look up, and it's brilliant. And it looks around the head, and it comes, and then it lands behind you, and then the music. So what we did is we uh, said, okay, how about with this? Well, the music can all get nice and nice and big and big and shouty and lovely and wonderful. But once it happens, once, once this jump happens, we'll cut all the sound out. So all we hear is a doom. And actually what we did is we, ha we had a, again, I think it was, again, I think it was a single string line, maybe a cello or something else. We just a cello and a but we had that triggered in by an all. So that followed the sound of this of this of this mech jumping over your head. And then when it landed, everything came back in. It was all nice and explosive. But that for me was the most interesting bit of doing VR. Was for for the first time ever, music is the master. Sound is the master. Ordinarily, sound is the slave. We are always responding. Sound music always responds to what happens visually in front of you. Well, all our music and everything else we're doing is event driven. It's the first time where we can actually use music and sound to direct where the player looks. And for me, that's what makes VR proper next gen. You know, the consoles have come, PS3, PS4 and everything else. And for, to be honest with you, not, it's not a great deal of difference from our perspective from the PS3 to the PS4. Xbox 360, Xbox One. We've still got we've got reasonable amounts of RAM. We've got reasonable amounts of middleware support. DSP. We can we can we can crossfade between lots of different chunks of audio. It's all been done. That's pretty good. But for me, this is where VR felt like this was my next gen. Wow, fantastic! Let's uh, let's hop into this last piece of music. This is credits from Rigged Mechanized Combat League. And we thank everyone for listening. We'll catch you next week. Yeah.